0: When you read uh, most of the Christian publications that speak to the health of the church in America today, typically they're not very positive. They talk about the number of millennials who grew up in the church who are now walking away from the church. They speak about the older generation who has grown weary and tired of of carrying the load. They've kind of done their part and they are looking for others to take the lead and yet There's a leadership vacuum in that next generation's willingness to serve. They would prefer to just go along for the ride. Because that leadership investment infringes on a life of overcommitment. Or to put it more bluntly, they just don't have time. Church has become one of many options in our world today. And it's no longer a necessity for our spiritual lives. Now whether that assessment is true or not is up for debate and that's actually not a debate that we're going to look at this morning because instead of discussing what it looks like when things go wrong I want us to consider what it looks like when things go right. What are the qualities of a faith that finishes strong? What does it look like when someone hits the tape running? And I believe that when we look at our passage this morning, Paul will answer that question. And what we'll see is that it's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of how we view our past and our hope for the future and what that does to shape the reality of our everyday lives. It's found in how we see life from God's point of view. And so before we look at that together this morning, let's offer this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we really do want to see life from your point of view. There are so many messages that are coming at us that want to define that for us, to tell us where our hope is and where happiness is found, where we find life that our heart longs for. God, we want to hear it from you. We want to know truth from your word, from your heart to your people. So will you give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we may live according to Not what the world says around us, but what do you say to us through your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, nearing the end of Paul's letter. Let's look at verse 6 together. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 6. Paul writing says, uh, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I have kept the faith. When Paul is speaking of his departure, he's talking about his death. We've said from the very beginning, Paul is well aware that his days are numbered. He understands that this will very likely be the last letter that he will ever write, so he chooses his words very carefully. But I want you to notice that Paul doesn't say what we might expect him to say, something along the lines of, My time has come to an end. (laughs) That's not what he says. He says it's a departure. The reason that's important is because as you think about a departure, a departure is a transition from one reality to a new one. So, for example, when a plane departs, it doesn't cease to exist. It simply leaves one location and moves to a different destination. So from Paul's perspective, death is not an end. He doesn't cease to exist. He's simply moving to a a new destination. It is the beginning of something new. It's a departure. And until that departure, Paul says that his life is being poured out like a drink offering. Now, for his readers, that would have painted a very clear picture in their minds because it looks back to the Old Testament sacrifices. When that sacrificial lamb was placed on the altar and a cup of wine would be poured on that sacrifice, and the Scripture says that it created a a soothing aroma to the Lord, which is exactly what Paul wanted his life to be, a living sacrifice that was pleasing to the Lord. That life is being described in verse 7. Look at that again. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Paul uses three metaphors to describe the faithful life. First, he says, I have fought the good fight. The imagery here is a a battlefield. There's a war going on. And in that war, Paul is battling for good. And, And the war that Paul is speaking about is still being waged. The reason is, our enemy is alive and well. Scripture's clear. He intends to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Satan is the father of lies and the author of doubt. It has been his strategy from the very beginning. Ever since he whispered those words to Adam and Eve when he said, surely you will not die. And then he planted within them that seed of doubt. That God was withholding something good from them. And he's been doing the same thing ever since. And Paul has gone to war against these lies. He has battled for what is good, for what is right, for what is true. A faithful life is someone who fights for truth. Someone whose life is grounded in God's word. He goes on and says... I have finished the course. I want you to notice that in both of those examples, he didn't talk about victory on the battlefield or winning the race. That's not what he said. Because the goal is not to win. The goal is to finish, to stand strong to the end. Remember, faithfulness is God's measurement of success. We talked about that last week. Paul says that he's finished the course. He did what God had called him to do. Last week he told Timothy, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Be faithful wherever God has placed you in the ministry that he has called you to. You see, we're not trying to win the race. We're simply trying to finish strong. It's the idea of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We are running a race that God has set before us. And this race is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's an endurance race. And so you won't be able to finish this race if you're carrying a lot of extra baggage. That's why it tells us to look at Jesus, to let go of sin, to trust in God, to to not go your own way. Follow the path that he has laid before you. Stay the course. Tatiana, one of the things that I thought of when I looked at this passage is cross country. I know you run cross country. Several of you may have done that before. I've been out to McKinsey. You've seen them run. That's the course that they run. And it's not an easy one. It's one of the few places in Lubbock, Texas that's filled with every hill that you could imagine. And you just happen to run around all those, Right. But it's snakes because it has to hit all those inclines and declines. And you have to be careful because if you're not paying attention, you will run off the course. And so much is true about our walk with Christ. The scripture tells us that God created, we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus. Created for good works that he prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. And so being able to run the course means that we fix our eyes on Jesus that we follow Him, that we are faithful to go where He is leading us. A faithful life is someone who fights for truth, someone who stays the course, someone who keeps the faith. That is the ultimate goal, keeping the faith. When I read this, I couldn't help but think of the life of Job. Because when you think of the life of Job, what was Satan's goal in Job's life? You see, Satan believed that that uh, that Job believed because life was good, and that if you made life hard on Job, then he would turn his back on God. You see, Satan's ultimate goal in that whole story is to make Job quit. That was his goal, to turn his back on God and walk away, (laughs) and I would suggest to you this morning, that is Satan's goal for every single one of us, myself included. He wants you to quit. But a faithful life is one that keeps the faith when things go well and when things get hard. Paul is not boasting in what he accomplished, Paul is rejoicing in the fact that he didn't quit, that he stood strong in his truth, that he stayed the course, that he kept the faith. Paul wasn't perfect. He made mistakes just like you and I. He struggled with sin just like you and I. But as he considered his life, he knew that up until the very end, he was running hard after Jesus. Paul didn't quit. He fixed his eyes on Jesus. He ran with endurance. He kept the faith. Do you see the picture that he's trying to paint for us here? A faithful life is someone who fights for truth, someone who stays the course, someone who refuses to quit. They trust in God's word. They walk in God's ways. They keep the faith. It is a life that puts the power of the gospel on display because this is not about what we do for God. This is about living faithful out of the reality of what God does in us. Our faithfulness to him flows out of his faithfulness us. That's what this is about. That's Paul's perspective of the past and what God has done in his life up to this point. But then he looks to the future. Look at what it says in verse 8. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, we like stats, don't we? We want to watch the game last night. We want to know who was the high scorer, who had the most rebounds. Baseball season opened up today. I know they say it's tomorrow, but it's really today. And and we want to know who hits the most home runs. We like to rank players based on their performance. Roger told me this morning he was in a mock draft with his family, and he had his players ranked to know who who he was going to draft. That's what we do. We like stats. But you see, Paul understands... There are no scoreboards in heaven. There are no rewards based on what we accomplish. The saints are not ranked in heaven. The reason is, is because we all share the same reward. Paul is looking forward to receiving the crown of righteousness from Jesus, the righteous judge. Now, we talked about that last week, is Jesus will judge us based on what we believe. And we must all give an account. And those who put their faith in Christ are exempt from that judgment. Why are they exempt? Because they believe that Jesus took our judgment upon himself. That he was pierced for our transgressions. That he was crushed for our sins. That the punishment that was due to us was upon him. That he who knew no sin became sin. Our sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The crown of righteousness is not given to us based on what we accomplish. It is not a reward based on our good works. The righteousness of God is credited to us through faith in Jesus Christ. The reward we receive is based upon what Jesus accomplished on the cross, not what we do for him. Because notice, Paul is not claiming a a crown that is somehow unique to him. He's not up in heaven on the podium saying, look at me, look at me, first place, aren't you proud? That's not what he said. In fact, he said his crown is the same one that everyone else in heaven will be wearing. It's not a reward based on what we accomplish. It's a reward based on what Christ accomplished for us. It is the righteousness of God credited to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says that this crown belongs to all who have loved his appearing. Now, listen to that. It's past tense. Those who have loved his appearing... So this is not something that you figure out once you get there. Our reward in heaven is based on what we believe right now. Right now. And more specifically, what we believe about the appearing of Jesus Christ, who he was and what he accomplished. The Gospel of John attempts to try to summarize what that's all about in John chapter 20. When John writes at the end of his Gospel in uh, verse 30, Verse 30 of chapter 20, he says this. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, so that when you see Jesus, you see God, the creator of life, came to sacrifice his life so that we might have eternal life in his name. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Do you see how the assurance of things past is what gives us a hope for the future? And this was even more important for Timothy in light of all the false teaching that was going on because what were they saying? The resurrection has already happened. Chapter 2, verse 18 of our passage says this. Men have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and thus they have upset the faith of some. See, a realized resurrection removes a future hope. It looks for a heavenly blessing as an earthly reward. It destroys faith because it expects God to give us the good life right now. It is the wrong idea that being a Christian means that things should go well for you. A future hope is lost in the pursuit of worldly gain. As a Christian, our hope is fixed squarely on the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're not here to build our own kingdom. We're awaiting His. We're not here to make a name for ourselves. We're here to make His name known. We're not here to make our place a home here. His kingdom is our home. We live a faithful life when our heart is set on a future hope. Look at how he continues in verse 9. He says, make every effort to come to me soon, Timothy, for Demas has loved this present world and has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus has sent, uh, I have sent to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Trous with Carpus in the books, especially the parchments. I love this particular passage because it gives us the reality of the life in between. (laughs) Life this side of heaven. And it's not always easy. Paul is anticipating his death. And so there's some urgency to his plea to Timothy, please come soon. And when you come, I want you to bring my cloak, uh, literally a coat. And the reason is, is that he's been in prison for some time and it's nearing winter. He's in solitary confinement with a Hole in the roof, and that's the only light he has and the only air he breathes. There is no heating, there is no cooling, and as it gets colder, as it moves towards winter, uh, Paul Paul doesn't have anything to keep him warm. The jail is not going to provide it for him. And so he's asked Timothy, Come soon and bring my coat. But more than anything, he longs for company because some who stood with Paul in the past have now deserted him. He mentions specifically a man by the name of Demas, and even though that name may not sound that familiar to us, I believe to Paul he was a very close friend. And The reason I believe that's true is because in Philemon, verse 24, he talks about those in ministry with him. And he says, I send greetings on behalf of Mark, Demas, and Luke, who are all fellow co-workers in the faith for the sake of the gospel. Now think about that. Mark, the writer of the gospel of Mark. Luke the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts and Demas who was one like them a very close friend the inner circle of Paul's ministry workers but in the midst of all the persecution and difficulty Demas deserted it says because he loved the world now in my opinion I don't think that this necessarily means that he deserted the faith altogether Instead, what I think what happened here is that he was unwilling to stand with Paul because of what it would cost him. He was unwilling to stand with Paul because of what it would cost him. Now, more likely, there was a limit to how far Demas was willing to go. And in the end, his desire for comfort overruled his willingness to make a sacrifice. Clearly, we can see from this passage that the desertion of Demas was significant to Paul. And I believe that was true because they were close friends. This is someone who's always stood by him, who has now walked away. And if you follow Jesus for very long, there's a good chance that you know exactly what Paul is experiencing. And Paul mentions others, he mentions Cretans, he mentions Titus. Uh, But when he mentioned those, he's, he's mentioned them in regards to what they've done in the priority of ministry. These men have not deserted Paul like Demas has. Instead, they are on mission. Only Luke was with him. Luke, his faithful physician friend, who was there to care for him, not just spiritually, but to take care of those physical needs as well. That was his place of ministry, and he was being faithful to serve God there. And then there's Mark. Paul says, pick up Mark and bring him with me or with you, for he has been useful to me. Now, think about that, because Mark once deserted Paul just like Demas did. During his first missionary journey, when things got hard, Mark took off. It was too much for him, and he was unwilling to continue. And at the point that he changed his mind and thought, I'd like to give this a try again, what did Paul say? no can't do it you walked away but remember we said that faithfulness was god's measurement of success it's someone who refuses to quit now mark may have failed but he didn't give up he didn't let his past define his future he stayed the course and he ended up having a, fruit, a fruitful ministry. And in the end, he became a very close friend and partner with Paul in ministry. You see, here's the key. There's always room for redemption if we refuse to quit. There's always room for redemption if we refuse to quit. In addition to company and clothes, uh, Paul asked for Uh, his parchments or the books that he had. And I believe those parchments specifically speak to the Old Testament Scripture. In those final days of his life, everything boiled down to what matters most to Paul. And I want you to be clear on what matters most. God's people and God's Word. Paul didn't invite his friends down to the dungeon to discuss his estate, to figure out what he was going to do with his inheritance (laughs) His retirement fund. In fact, the reality is he had sacrificed all that for the sake of Christ. When it came down to it, what mattered most to Paul was good friends and God's word. These are the two things that kept him strong. And I want to suggest to you this morning, it is no different for you and I. Losing a friend like Demas was a discouraging reality for Paul. And Paul needed others to come alongside him to remind him of what's true. Paul, the apostle, needed others to come alongside him to remind him of what's true. Paul, the apostle, needed God's word to strengthen his resolve so that he could fight the good fight, finish the course, keep the faith. Good friends, in God's word. Those are two key ingredients to the faithful life. It was true for Paul, and it's true for you and I as well. Now, as I say that, I want to give you a caution, because here's something that I've observed very consistently over time. God's Word and good friends are very important. They're key ingredients to a faithful life. And yet, when we go through a hard time, the temptation is to abandon both. So that we isolate and hide in our hurt. We're unwilling to share our pain, to let people in. And left to ourselves, we end up believing lies. So much so that those lies circulate unintended in our mind to the point that they become true to us. Just like in the garden. That's where Satan does his best work. And the next thing you know, we're overwhelmed. We're hopeless and we're not just hiding from others, we're hiding from God. We were created to live in community. What did God say after he created Adam and looked upon all that he created? He said, it is not good for man to be alone. We were created in his image, the image of a fellowship of Trinity. We were made for community. And it is not good for man to be alone. We need good friends to speak truth into our lives. We need God's word to show us the way. So some of you may need to call out from the dungeon this morning. You may need to reach out to friends and invite them into some pretty hard places. You may need to share the struggles that you are involved in so that they can walk with you because don't overestimate your own ability to stand strong in the truth on your own if you can you're better than i am because i can't when i'm in a dark place i call my friend doug McAlpine, and i say doug (laughs) i need you to remind me of what's true and he'll send me what his opinion no he sends me god's word and it reminds me, this is what's true. And it keeps me strong. We all need good friends in God's word. And if you're in the dungeon this morning, let me urge you to call out for help. To invite somebody in. And let them speak truth into your life. And if you're not in the dungeon, praise God. But you need to look for those who are. Don't be like Demas. That you get so caught up in your own world that you lose sight of those around you. Unwilling to make the sacrifice so that you can be comfortable. If there's somebody that's on your heart, would you please reach out to them? Don't expect the elders to do it. Don't expect their other friends to do it. You do it. Call them. Write them a note. Do something to reach out. Think about people who are here on Sunday morning. Is there somebody you haven't seen in a while? Then call them. Make sure they're okay. Check on them. I tell you how many, I can't tell you how many times we've heard people say, it's just good to be missed. I'm glad you noticed. And that's what draws them back. So maybe that's what you need to do this morning. Find someone who's missing and reach out to them. Good friends and God's Word, those are our greatest treasures. Fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Because in the end, that's our heavenly reward. Him. Him. That should be the motivation that causes us, stirs us, encourages us to be faithful. Because ultimately, that's what life is all about. Life with Him for all eternity. So trust in Him to give you what you need for today. So that you can live faithfully for Christ. In a sin cursed world. Let's pray together. Father thank you for the truth of your word. In a world of a lot of lies. We accept the fact that our enemy is alive and well. He is the master of deception. He is the author of doubt. But you are the author and perfecter of faith. And so we fix our eyes on you. And Father as we. Uh, seek to run the race we don't have any anticipation of winning because you've won on our behalf and the crown of righteousness that we wear is what has been credited to us through faith in jesus christ our savior so father help us live as a people who are committed to finishing strong and as we do that may we not be so encompassed in our own world that we forget to look around us so if there are people who are missing that are on our heart, that may be in a dungeon, a dark place. May they have good friends in God's word who come to the rescue, who come beside them, who walk with them, who enter into those places of hurt and pain. And Father, if anyone here this morning is in that place, I pray that mostly they reach out to you, but they see that you work mightily through your people, and so they reach out to others. Invite them in and find that God is faithful to love us through his people. May we be faithful to follow you. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great day.